Welcome to the Apocalypse Podcast. This is an online Bible study of the book of Revelation as taught by Pastor Andy Kroll. You can find more resources online at www.thepulpiteer.com backslash revelation. All right. Hello, everybody. This is Pastor Andy. Um, We had a couple recording issues when I did this initial class for the fourth week. And so what I'm going to do is record these um, in the home studio and kind of uh, post this class separately. So I apologize for the delay in it, but uh, um, we'll get this teaching up here. And I want to break this session down into two parts. The first part that I'm doing here will deal with the the rapture, and the second part will deal more specifically with chapters 4 and 5. So here we go looking at um, the rapture. I want to begin with an opening statement, or kind of opening question, of what if the book of Revelation is not primarily about future predictions, but instead if it's about how we are to live faithfully now? Um, and so that's kind of what I, I want us to to use as a framework to look at the book is what if this book isn't about isn't like the work of a fortune teller um, but instead what if this is a vision that's to challenge and encourage us to live faithful lives uh, lives faithful to Jesus Christ uh, right now and so that sort of thing is going to follow through with the rapture stuff Um, I want to begin with a disclaimer by saying that people who believe in the rapture are Christian brothers and sisters. They are. I mean, it's this is a disagreement we have within the faith. Uh, the litmus test for uh, whether someone is, is a Christian or not always comes down to Christ and what they believe about Christ, if they believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, dispensationalist folks do believe that, and so they are brothers and sisters. And I wanted to come out with that because I, um, I do have a strong opinion about this, about I disagree with the rapture teaching, um, but even though I strongly disagree with it, I do want to be clear that um, people who believe that are, are brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm not mad at them or, or whatever the case may be. So I want to come out with that first. I'm going to argue that the rapture is a wrong teaching, uh, and I'm going to cover three areas as to why that is. First is it's not taught in Scripture. The second is it is not taught traditionally by the church. And the third has to do with the theological implications. And what I mean about that is what the rapture teaching says about God and creation are problematic. Um, I have to cover this, though, because the rapture teaching is popular. And I want uh, to say that that certainly is the case. I was watching an older movie about dispensational stuff. It actually had Gary Busey in it. I think it's called Tribulation. And it's kind of one of these older... Um, kind of cheesy movies and but Gary Busey is in it so you know I had to watch it and in it um Gary Busey's character looked at one of the other main characters in the book and said uh or in the in the movie and said oh, what is it that all you Christians believe about Christians just being taken away from the earth and and she said oh you mean the rapture and so I, I wanted to point that out because it was just interesting okay moving on to uh, another person uh, who teaches a dispensational thought, uh, Tim LaHaye, one of the authors of the Left Behind series, wrote a book called The Rapture, and he writes that, uh, he writes, quote, virtually all Christians who take the Bible literally expect to be raptured before the Lord comes to power, comes in power to this earth, unquote. 
Um, and think about what exactly he's implying with that when he says virtually all Christians who take the Bible literally. Of course, it's implying something about uh, other folks, or people like me, uh, who do not believe in the rapture. And it seems to be implying some sort of a, a lesser than reading. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what he means by taking the Bible literally. Uh, I wonder, does he believe that Jesus is literally a lamb or literally a lion? Or that there will be an antichrist that is literally a beast uh, with horns and whatnot, or that the churches are literally lampstands, or that Jesus literally has a sword coming out of his mouth, or that Jesus literally is a door or, or a gate for the sheep or whatever. Um, and so, as you can see, you can kind of you could go on with that for uh, for a long time about all the symbolism used, and you know, it's you can say this literal stuff, but. It, the question always has to be, what is the Bible trying to say? I mean, that's the key thing. What is the Bible trying to say? Um, and that's the question that the traditional interpretation and the dispensational interpretation are both trying to answer. And so I don't really care for the implication about, uh, I don't know, it seems to imply I'm not taking the Bible seriously. But, but I actually am. I'm trying to ask the question, what is the Bible trying to say? And if the Bible is speaking... In, in poetry or uh, symbolic language or something like that, as the prophets often do, then trying to understand what what is being communicated, uh, because the the literal reading is not always the correct reading. Um, the literal reading uh, of Jesus having a sword coming out of his mouth would mean that Jesus wouldn't be able to talk without um, mumbling or whatever. So. So there's that. So I want to look uh, at scripture. In the first scripture, the the scripture is kind of central to this whole interpretation. It comes from First Thessalonians chapter four, and really, without this particular interpretation of these verses, there's no one um, who would really teach the rapture. This is the core of this entire idea rests here in First Thessalonians four. Um, they use other scripture to in, to point towards the rapture, but without this kind of core bit, you just wouldn't see it. And this is the set of verses where there's the word Latin, uh, I think it's raptus or whatever, where they get the word rapture uh, from. And, and the the word rapture, is uh, it means to snatch up or to take away or whatever, and that's only found here. So then you have to ask, what's going on in First Thessalonians 4? What's the concern and whatnot? And the, the concern here, as you can see in verse 13, Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. And uh, what's going on is there's people in Thessaloniki that are concerned about Christians who have died, and they wonder if they're going to miss out on things when Jesus returns. So what's going to happen when Jesus returns? Um, are people who died, are they left out? How does that work? And Paul is answering that concern about what happens to believers who have died when, when Christ returns. Paul answers that Jesus will bring them with him when he returns. And that's what it says in, in verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. So that all seems clear thus far, like the people who have died are going to be returning with Christ when Christ returns. And then we get this uh, kind of confusing verse in, in verse uh, 15. Um, and, and one of the things to kind of get into here, or verse uh, 15, 16, 17, um, 
one of the things to kind of keep in mind here is is Paul is using a couple different um, images in the background here. He's using some imagery from Daniel 7. He's using some imagery from uh, Moses on the mountain with God in Exodus 19. And he's also using imagery that is going to be familiar to the first readers of this book, uh, which would be that of a Roman procession. Uh, and these are these images he's going to use to describe the return of Christ, something that would be think, uh, powerful and difficult to fully describe. If you So the first thing is, I'll look at Exodus 19 with Moses on the mountain with God. And one of the things that's happening in this, this is a theophany in Exodus 19, where theophany is a, 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 a manifestation of God. And God is on the mountain, and there's uh, clouds and thunder and lightning and, and whatnot. And there's the sound of a trumpet. And so this trumpet sound is, is signaling the, um, the arrival or the manifestation of God. So that's one of the things um, in verse 16. Uh, as you hear, it says, For the Lord himself with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven. And it's just like God descended from heaven to the mountain uh, in Exodus 19. And then it says, uh, continuing with Thessalonians, uh, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds. Which gets into Daniel 7, as there's one like a son of man who's in the clouds, coming to vindicate God's people and save them. And so you have Christ returning to vindicate God's people and save them, coming with the clouds. Well, um, those who have died are coming with Christ in the clouds. But then there's this bit about um, other people being caught up with them. And uh, it says, uh, let me kind of read that again. They'll descend from heaven. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive are left will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air and so we will be with the Lord forever so you have this meeting the Lord in the air and this is where the thought is I guess we meet the Lord in the air and then we go back to heaven although it doesn't say that in first Thessalonians just as we'll be with the Lord forever um, so what's going on and why would we meet the Lord in the air well if you are working under the assumption that this is the return of the Lord, which is the doctrine of the church, that the Lord comes back, not that the Lord comes halfway, um, that the Lord comes back, then when we meet him in the air and are with him forever, then we're with him where he's going, which is coming back to earth. And the imagery that's that's used here is uh, in, in Roman times, when, uh, say, if the Caesar came to visit your town, the loyal citizens of Rome would leave the city they would go out and they would meet Caesar outside of the city and then have a triumphal procession back into the city. And so here we have the Lord, uh, Jesus as the Lord of, of the earth, coming to the earth. And so the images, the faithful citizens of the New Jerusalem, the faithful citizens of heaven, meeting their king in the air to do a triumphal procession back into the city or, or into the world itself. Uh, and and so that's uh, what's going on here. And and Paul's what he's answering is it's not actually about rapture or not rapture. He's just saying you know don't worry. The people who have died in the Lord they're going to actually come with him. They're going to be they're going to meet first. Uh, we'll all meet in the air and then triumphantly process uh, back into um, back 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 to the earth. And that's the day of the Lord. That's when Jesus comes to to both judge and to set things right. Um, 
And if you go along with that, so these biblical allusions don't suggest a return to heaven. The Roman metaphor of procession does not at all suggest a return to heaven. Um, this is something that is that is read into the text. The next uh, verses I want to go over come from uh, Matthew 24. And uh, this is another kind of main verse, but the Thessalonians one is really the, the, the main one. But Matthew 24, verses 36 to 44. Let me find that in my... Bible program. And this is a a section of Matthew where Jesus is talking about the end in a couple different ways. Um, And one of the things that he's going into is the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 uh, AD and um, was obviously a pretty big deal. And was on the horizon, and so some of the um, predictions that we get in Matthew 24 have to do with, with the fall of Jerusalem. But also, uh, we have the, the end of days here, too. So, Jesus is uh, teaching that the coming of the Son of Man is at an unknown time, and will come as a surprise, so we need to be ready. So, he says right in uh, Matthew 24, 36, Jesus said, but about that day and the hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So already we have, uh, oh, with the speculation about the blood moons and whatnot, um, just here's a verse that's pretty clear that it's just not our job to speculate and to guess and to try and figure out when the end is coming. Um, We are in the end days. We need to be ready. We need to be ready now. Nobody knows. And when people tell you they think they know or they figured it out, you need to stop listening to that person. Uh, scripture very clearly teaches no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the sun. And if the sun doesn't know, there's not going to be some goofball here on earth that figures it out. Uh, so the next thing says, uh, verse 37, For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing of the flood, nothing until the flood came and swept them all away so too will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so uh, here you have people being swept away, and that's compared to, uh, they're saying the rapture comes and sweeps people away, there'll be two people. And and so with the coming of the Son of Man, yes, it'll come suddenly. Uh, People will be doing normal, everyday things, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, all that stuff. Uh, So, yep, absolutely agree with that. And then Jesus comes back at an unexpected time because nobody knows when he's coming. That's kind of the point of the whole thing. And then he compares it to Noah. If you think about it in Noah's time, uh, you know, there was Noah and his family entered the ark. And then ask yourself, uh, what swept people away in Noah's day? It was the flood. So the flood swept people away in Noah's day. Was it a good thing to be swept away in Noah's day? And the answer is no. Would you rather be taken or left behind in Noah's day? Well, ideally, you'd be left behind in the boat. Uh, Swept away is a bad thing. That means that you died, you drowned. Uh, And so um, this this text does not in any way point towards the rapture because it's not about... uh, The sweeping away is a a negative thing. Um, And then it goes on to say... um, then two will be in the field, and one will be taken, one will be left. Two women grinding, one will be taken, one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, would not have left his house to be broken into. And so he's getting into it. Again, the main theme of this paragraph is, 
you don't know when it's going to be happen. Hap- you don't know when it's going to happen when any these eschat- eschatological events will happen. You need to always be ready. But that one will be taken, one will be left. Um, is playing off of uh, the fall of Jerusalem and, and the Roman occupation as well. And if you were being occupied with the Roman occupation, and if you're looking ahead to when Jerusalem falls, would it be a good t- a good thing to be taken away? Uh, and the answer would be no, because what that would be would be the Roman army coming and taking you away. Uh, it would be being taken away uh, into punishment or into to death. And so... Um, again, the the analogies here, um, just the taking away is a negative thing. It was something that you'd want to be left behind, which is the opposite of what people are trying to teach with the rapture. I want to cover two other pieces of scripture, and in doing so, I want to, to just real briefly share um, why not only do I think the rapture is not taught, but I think it's the idea of the rapture is, is goes contrary to what scripture says. So if you look at John 17, verse 15, and this is uh, Jesus praying for his disciples, for his followers. Uh, Jesus prays to God the Father and prays, I ask not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And this is actually entirely consistent with um, with the book of Revelation, at least the book of Revelation as I've been teaching it, is that um, there's a... there's Physical harm in the world that can come to us through persecution, but there's an ultimate level of safety, a safety from the second death, uh, this resurrection of the dead that, that those who are in Christ have. And so Jesus is praying not that they would be taken out of the world, which is what people teaching the rapture teach, is that the church would be taken out of the world, which would go contrary to Jesus' prayer here. I uh, he said, but that you'd keep them from the evil one, and it's that ultimate uh, protection that God offers. So it's John seventeen fifteen. And in uh, Paul, writing in Second Timothy chapter three verse twelve, writes, "Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." And one of the things I think that um, I think bothers me most about the rapture teaching, and I think is most incompatible, is is the idea that um, God removes His church from suffering, and that has not been the case historically. That's not the case in Scripture. That's not the case for the disciples who were following Jesus. Uh, it's just not the teaching of Scripture, and it's not what Paul's writing here. Uh, in this world, you'll find trouble, Jesus writes. And so um, we have Paul writing here, uh, uh, indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is, it's not about uh, being raptured. Our hope is in uh, the return of Christ, who will bring uh, judgment and set things right. So that's the scriptural part. Uh, next, I want to. So the first thing was a scriptural objection. Second thing is a, an objection uh, by tradition. This has not been what the church has taught. Um, if you look, there are. So I'm going to list some churches whose official teaching is not the rapture. So here are churches. Their teaching is not the rapture. The Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox churches. So now you're going to. That's going to cover. I don't know. Was it at least half of worldwide Christianity? Uh, the Anglicans, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, the Lutheran churches, the ELCA, Missouri Synod, Wisconsin Synod, all of these do not teach the rapture. There may be people in those churches that, that may believe it, but it's not the stance of any of those denominations, and there's others I'm sure I missed. Uh, American Baptists would be another one. Um, so I want you to realize that the teaching of the rapture, even today, is a minority teaching. 
is a teaching, not that all Christians believe, as, as Gary Busey thought, but uh, it's actually a teaching that's in the minority. It may be the loudest teaching, but it's a minority teaching. So you kind of wonder, well, how did this happen? Where did this teaching come from? Well, this teaching was born and took shape in the 1830s. And I want you to think about that. So this is a, a teaching about scripture that people didn't follow this particular teaching until the 1830s. And it happened after a Scottish girl had an ecstatic vision at a healing meeting where she proposed a two-part return of Christ based off of 1 Thessalonians 4. Again, that scripture is right at the center of it. But this came from an ecstatic vision that she had. John Nelson Darby heard about the vision, and he taught it, and he developed it. And he taught it um, in America during the 1860s, which was, of course, in the midst of the American Civil War. And think about that time frame as well. So you have a nation divided and a nation that, when there's a, an escapist theology presented, that's going to have, have a good hearing. Uh, the teaching still may have died out, but Dwight Moody heard about it and became enamored with it. And this is uh, nothing to slight uh, Dwight Moody, who did a lot of wonderful things. But he had uh, quite a publishing uh, arm and quite a, a, an impact, influence over people. So he taught that, and Cyrus Schofield uh, learned it from him. And Schofield took Darby's teaching and put it into a study Bible. And the Schofield Study Bible uh, became immensely popular. And so in the Schofield Bible, you have um, dispensational teaching from Darby uh, laid out right under it. So it's in the Bible notes, which seems like it's part of the Bible and is just kind of laid out. So it came to shape in that time. This time period in America's history was kind of the perfect setting for the rapture teaching to take root for a couple of reasons. First reason is there were lots of sects and cults popping up um, that were focused on the end time. And the second reason was there was a reaction against something called 19th century Protestant liberalism. Let's start with the first one. There were these groups that were popping up that were focused on the end times. Um, groups like the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Shakers, Christian Science. They tended to focus on the end of the world and the coming of Christ. And, uh, you know, in these movements, they had people either predict when Christ was going to come and then fail that prediction and predict again, or uh, they would claim that they themselves were the incarnation of Christ or that they'd received some sort of special teaching or whatever the case may be. But it was the end of the world focused time. And so this eschatological teaching, uh, it was, there was something in the air where that would really take root. Alongside that, then the second reason is the, the rise of uh, Protestant liberalism. And I don't want you to think in terms of uh, political, American political liberalism. It's, it's a couple different things. Uh, Protestant liberalism was, uh, there were some scholars in Europe and then eventually America that, that used a rationalist thought and began to critically examine the Bible and ask questions. Okay, did this really happen? How do we know when it was written? How do we know if uh, archaeologically this stuff happened? And that sort of stuff. And as they asked these questions and approached it with skepticism, many ended up concluding that much of scripture was a myth. Uh, and, and with this comes just rationalist thought of basically if I can't observe it, it didn't happen. So you get things like um, Jefferson's famous uh, Bible where he cut out all of the supernatural events of uh, Christ's life and you end up with just uh, Jesus' teaching, which kind of neuters uh, the, the gospel story entirely. Well, um, faithful people who believed in scripture upon hearing that what they you know, have given their lives to is basically a myth uh, reacted against that. And so fundamentalism was born. 
as a response to Protestant liberalism, but it was a reaction. And by reaction, I mean it, it ended up you know, defining itself up and against this Protestant liberal movement, which means instead of centering yourself on you know, what is Orthodox Christianity, it's centering itself on um, as a reaction against something else that rose up. This uh, Protestant liberalism, then, you can, you can see how that would give a reaction that focused on the quote-unquote literal interpretation of Scripture. That's why uh, Tim LaHaye still makes that claim about the reading of the Bible, um, that they take it literally. It's, he's been shaped by that fight that we all have. And, and so um, he's, he's saying, when he says we take it literally, what he's trying to communicate is they take Scripture seriously or has a high view of Scripture. Uh, which, uh, you know, I would certainly say that I have a high view of Scripture, but I, again, have a different set of questions to it. And that fundamentalist uh, set of questions is shaped as a reaction against Protestant liberalism. Well, the Schofield Reference Bible was the Bible for fundamentalists. That's the one that was, was very popular, and therefore, um, it was the Bible that people who believed the script had a high view of Scripture in the United States, it's the Bible that they tended to have. So it meant that this dispensational teaching was closely associated with people who had a high view of Scripture. Not because it was more faithful to the Bible, but rather because of this uh, historical occurrence where uh, it, was, it was part of this bigger movement of stuff that was going on. And so when, we, um, when you say that you don't believe the rapture is scriptural, a lot of times I'll, I'll pause in a class when I'm teaching that and just kind of have everyone do a, a check and see how they're reacting against it. Because um, what people tend to hear is not um, that you disagree with the doctrine. They tend to hear, oh, it must be you don't believe in Christianity or the Bible, um, and, which is just simply not the case. Uh, the reason for that uh, goes back into the historical roots of the movement itself. The big takeaway I want you to get from this tradition part, though, is that the teaching of the rapture is a relatively new teaching. It's not, it wasn't taught by many in the church. You know, it wasn't taught by anybody in the church for 18 centuries. And uh, even now, it's, it's just taught by a minority of the denominations in, uh, in worldwide Christianity. Now, that's not to say it has to be wrong because of that. But it does have to make you wonder, um, why would it be the case that they had suddenly found a new way of reading the Bible that, you know, uh, millions of Christians prior to them and millions of Christians at the same time with them just have not found or do not, do not see taught in Scripture. The third reason um, that I'm going to say that uh, is in regards to this teaching why I don't believe the rapture is accurate would be theological in regards to so what this says about God, what this says about creation. One of the things I would point out is that the, the rapture teaching is America-centric. And by that, I mean it's um, it comes from a point of view that kind of sees America at the center of, of the world of history. Uh, and, and so we tend to ask if the end is coming, when things are bad for us. I know that there's a focus on on the country or the nation of Israel, but then it's always an America needs to back Israel or that sort of thing. Um, we, uh, when we, we ask when persecution is coming, um, we kind of wonder, I think persecution's on the way or things might be getting worse. Are the end times here because things seem to be negative against Christianity? Um, it's interesting that we'd ask that when in the 1900s uh, we had the most martyrs in, in church history 
persecution is al- already here. Um, it's just in America we have a different uh, a different situation where we have the luxury of asking when persecution's coming. Um, we happen to live in a day and an age in the United States of America in this time where we have the luxury of wondering uh, if and when the church will be persecuted. That's not been the case for people and for Christians in communist China or communist communist Russia. That's not been um, the case uh, for people at different points uh, throughout history. And so um, one of the things for us to keep in mind is that um, Christianity is a is a worldwide phenomenon, not something that just happens in the United States of America. And the rapture teaching tends to be pretty centered on America. I listened to uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, who's a British a bishop of the Anglican Church. And he made an offhanded comment uh, a couple of times when I've heard him that um, the rapture stuff is just, it's something that they talk about over here uh, in the United States, but it's not really a conversation that, that many people are having in Britain. It's just not in the conscience, consciousness. Uh, this is a thoroughly American uh, kind of teaching and, and movement. Uh, so besides it being America-centric, I, I would emphasize that theologically what it says about God is something that ought to uh, raise concern for us. God is a good and faithful creator God. And the faithful creator doesn't simply pull the plug and abandon ship. Um, Genesis you know, 1 and, and, and 2 teach about a God who um, creates a good creation. And this idea that at some point God is going to pull his people from the earth and just uh, rain down evil upon it um, doesn't strike me as the actions of a faithful God. It doesn't make sense that God would pull the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit, because what it's saying is that there's that there's retreat. It doesn't make sense that God would pull the plug so that the world could be destroyed. And it also implies that God is going to beat the crap out of creation, which ignores Genesis 1, where God said creation was good, and it ignores Romans 8, where it says that creation is grown in an eager anticipation for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Uh, that that it's uh, been it's in labor pains that it's uh, that it's in bondage to decay um, that this broken creation and bondage to decay is waiting to be liberated by this you know faithful creator God instead of God just pulling up all of his troops and, and saying I'm going to take my ball and go home Scripture doesn't teach that God's going to take his ball and go home instead it teaches that Jesus will come again and rescue and restore the good creation that was cursed by sin that he's going to cleanse it of evil not let evil run roughshod. That's why the prophets talk about a return from exile, about a new creation, about, and that's why the New Testament teaches about a bodily resurrection of Christ instead of our souls just staying off someplace else. That's why the resurrection is so important to us as Christians because it's God's good creation that's restored. I mean, by resurrection, I don't mean... So we die and we go to heaven, but that's not the end of the story. At some point, there is going to be a resurrection of the dead and we, have, we get resurrection bodies back. That's because this connection to creation, creation is is God's good creation and God is faithful. And and the idea of the rapture is that God would pull his church from creation and, and in a sense abandon it. But that's not what the New Testament is teaching. That's why Revelation ends with the new Jerusalem coming down to earth. And that's why Jesus teaches us to pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, God doesn't retreat from creation. God wins in the end. And the coming of Christ is not a come to take people away. The coming of Christ is a come to kick evil out. 
and to bring restoration to the good creation that's been broken. And, then, and I realized that there are many images to describe that restoration. There's a renewal of creation. There's creating something new. And there's also this idea of this, uh, uh, maybe this uh, burning up or, or whatever. But I would think of that even in, uh, as a refiner's fire to bring forth that, um, that part of creation that's, um, that's God's good creation and, and to uh, kind of melt away the brokenness that's going on. So one of the th- it's important to, I think one of the things about the rapture that, that again bothers me a lot is just this idea that God at some point is going to just pull his people from the earth. That doesn't strike me as the actions of a, of a God that is a faithful creator God that's whole project has been to rescue humanity and indeed all of creation with that. So uh, those are, that's the, uh, the end of the um, teaching on, on why I do not teach the rapture. I'm going to go ahead and move on to a second teaching here in a bit. But um, thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, go ahead and uh, log into the blog and, and uh, ask away. Thank you very much.